This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. Hey, everyone, and thank you for tuning back into another episode of the show. I have been a little bit MIA lately. I have been doing a lot of closings. We had three homes that we bought this week. And so there's a lot going on with the financing and the, the raising of capital and the contractors and just everything that goes along with buying and selling. And so I am back at it, going to be releasing episodes weekly now. And so today's episode, I sit down with Justin Monk. He's a husband and father to four kids in Utah, and he's currently a partner and the director of sales for one of Utah's largest solar installation companies. That's on his W-2 job side, but on his real estate side, he has been investing in real estate using the Burr method, both locally and in Ohio. He hosts the Money Maven Project podcast, make sure you check it out, where he interviews thought leaders on success, mindset, real estate, and building the life that you want, kind of like what we do here. Justin believes that our minds are often our most limiting factor, and if we can control our mindset, we can control our outcomes. I can't agree more with that. And with that being said, here's today's golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is understand your market's cycle. And that just means understand when it's easier to sell a home and when it's easier to not sell a home. For example, right now, in my market, it's one of the worst times to sell a home, in my opinion, because we're going into the holidays and generally speaking, the time between you know November, December, January is a really slow time in real estate, and not a lot of homes are sold nearly as much as during the summer. And so let's say you're planning on flipping properties, maybe plan on holding that property for an extra 30 days instead of getting an offer on day one. So understand your market cycle theory. And you need to know when to invest in this certain phase. So talk to your agent about this, who's helping you with your transactions to know, hey, should I hold on to this property? Should I sell? I think that's the beautiful part about being a buy and hold investor too, is you can rent out a property for a few months or a few years. And then when it's the perfect time to sell, then you can sell and get top dollar. And during the time you know that you're renting it, you're still getting the cash flow and equity build up. And so that's the really great part about being a buy and hold investor too, rather than just a fix and flipper. And so market cycle theory is something I'm really interested in. And then, you know, on a grand scale, when you think about market cycles, as far as the grand economy, there's going to be a dip in the economy every this amount of years. And so you can study that and really get lost in it. But uh, specifically today, I'm talking about the seasonal market cycles of your market. So make sure you know that and you study that and factor that in when you're going to rent out or sell a property. So with all that being said, here's my interview with Justin Monk. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Justin. How's it going? It's going good, man. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. So Justin, I know a lot of people start off you know, shows like this asking how you got started and all that, and we can get to that. But I want to pose the question a little bit differently. When was your aha moment that you got into real estate investing. Okay. Yeah. So early on, we, uh, when, when I, when I first got married, we purchased a town home to live in and, and we lived in it for a few years and then we moved out, we bought a different home and we rented that town home out. And I'm like, well, that's, Hey, that makes perfect sense. I like this cash flow thing. 
but I, even before that, I knew that real estate had incredible potential for building wealth. I had an uncle who, who sold, who built a company outside of real estate, just another service company and sold that company for lots of money, millions of dollars. And he once told me that he made more money in real estate after selling that company than he ever made inside of the company. And I'm like, wow, that, you know, he worked his tail off for X million when he sold the company and then made more money with that money in real estate afterwards. I'm like, okay, that that was kind of the first like sense of what the power of real estate was to generate wealth. And so I knew all along that I needed to have some kind of a finger in that world. And so, like I said, we rented out that townhome initially. The cash flow was great. It was super, I mean, it was it was a newer property, so it was very little maintenance. It was awesome. And but what we quickly realized is that that's great if you have one, but more is better. And I realized that if I've got to come up with third, 25, 30% down for each property, I was going to run out of capital very quickly. So that's where I did more digging, you know, I discovered biggerpockets.com and their podcast and a lot of the books and discovered the Burr strategy, which is what we mainly focus on now, which allows for our capital to go a lot farther. Um, we invest out of state, mostly in Ohio. I live in Utah and we use that Burr strategy over and over and over again. So that's kind of my entrance into the investing world, just always kind of knowing that there was more to generating wealth than just having a good, you know, W2 job. Yeah. I love that story about your uncle because, you know, starting a company from scratch, you know, I think of these tech companies, it's high risk, high reward, you know, and it's cool that, you know, he went back to real estate, which is something any average Joe, the person who has no creativity, no, you know, no degrees that they can get into as well. So that's a really good reminder for us all. Mm-hmm. So you, you're doing the townhome thing and then um, you've, obviously scaled up from there because of the burr has allowed you to re reuse that capital. And we're not going to go into that strategy now because we have other podcasts that discuss that. Yeah. Um, today's show is all about, you know, sales, because I know in your W2 job, you you're in a sales type environment and then you go to real estate, whether you're an agent or an investor, you're met with sales and how do you be a good negotiator salesperson while creating those win-win relationships because as we know, it's all about networking, negotiating, and finding deals. So how does a person who maybe doesn't have a background in sales get the same success that a person with that background can have? Yeah, I mean, I definitely learn learn sales skills. I mean, they, whether you're in real estate or whatever you're doing, whether you're raising money for a nonprofit, sales skills in the sense of understanding people's hesitancy and their objections and help and and knowing how to overcome objections that is a priceless skill regardless so i don't it doesn't matter who you learn from whether it's brian tracy uh tom hopkins grant cardone is my personal favorite but as also um the wolf of wall street what's his name uh, Jordan Belfer, I think is yeah. his name. There, there's a lot of trainers out there. Um, Grant Cardone, I think is, is, is the best personal opinion there, but um, I, you can get a lot of really f- good education. Um, they all have platforms to learn from. So I definitely would dive into that and, and try and learn that. Um, if you're, if you can get a job in sales that provides training, you know, a lot of the door to door pest control companies, they're really good at training their guys anywhere. Right. And and I actually started 10, 12 years ago, I went door to door selling pest control in California. So that's where my sales 
expertise or my sales experience started. And so just do whatever you can to learn it because it's going to be a game changer as far as you understanding how to negotiate and communicate with, with sellers. At the end of the day, right, we all deals usually come in the form of off market, talking direct with seller, whether you're wholesaling or just trying to pick up a property for the birth strategy. It doesn't matter that you're going to encounter some resistance or some objections and being able to overcome that's going to be huge. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of good things, but I also wanted to say, you know, there's a reason that sales, there's, there's no degree for it. I mean, there can be, but generally there's no degree because it requires more experience and it can be taught, but it can't at the same time, you know, you, you can learn it from books, but also it just takes getting out there. And that's why I recommend you probably recommend people get started in some capacity of sales, you know, knock on doors, work for a pest control company, be a real estate agent, whatever you can do to scratch that itch. Because my background, especially being in accounting, I mean, I was in an office all day. I had no opportunity to exercise my sales skills. Mm-hmm. That was, I thought, you know, that's, that's the partner's job. They're, they're the one driving the business. I'm just doing the books and whatever. And that keeps you really keeps you small because the people that drive the business, drive the sales are the ones that make the most money. Yeah. So what is the number one sales skill to develop as a real estate investor? If you could pin down, I mean, and I'm talking, is it the ability to find the best deals, the ability to network the best? What's the most important sales skill to develop? Assuming that you already have a lead and you have, you know, let's just say you've got somebody that responded to a direct mail piece or your text campaign or your phone calls, and you've got somebody that's interested in talking to you about selling their property, an owner, right? What's going to separate you from the other people that are trying to buy that place is going to be your communication skills and your ability to overcome their objections, I think, anyway. Because right, they're going to have, well, you know, why would I sell to you? I should go list it. They're going to have all kinds of things of as far as objections. And I think if you can understand the process of handling those objections, it's going to allow you to communicate better, provide more benefits, more value to that seller, and hopefully close the deal. I think the most common mistake in sales is that when you hear an objection, you think that's the real objection and that's the only objection. What I have learned in sales is that 95% of the time, if not more, a stated objection usually is a smokescreen, usually it's a distraction, and usually it's not the only one or it's not the real one. And so your ability to push through that and, and using script, and we can kind of go through some different scripting of how to push through that, that to find the real reason that they are hesitant to sell you that property. That's going to be the number one skill for you to get these deals in lieu of somebody else getting it. I love that you mentioned that the skill to overcome objections, because yeah, there's very little chance that a seller will have no objections. I mean, they have to be a complete lay down, uh, completely just they wanted to sell it yesterday, totally motivated to to have no objections, to just sign the dotted line and wait for their check to come. Generally, you're going to have a ton of objections. So you can mention some of those, but I also wanted to mention, I mean, some of those in, in my personal business have been, well, I want to talk to my attorney first. So mm-hmm. for example, on, on that, I say, well, is there something I didn't make clear in the agreement? Is there something I didn't mention? Let's walk through that before, because I don't want you to have to pay $300 an hour to your attorney. Things like that, you could obviously position a little better than I did, but those are kind of, 
overcoming objections. That's what you're talking about there, right? So can you mention a few of those that you encounter in your day-to-day? Yeah. I mean, whether I'm selling solar or I'm trying to get a deal under contract, you know, there's always those, those, those um, stall objections, which oftentimes are, I want to talk to my attorney. I want to talk to my wife. I want to talk to my partner, which really most of the time they're just, actually, I just want some more time to think about it. I don't really need to talk to anybody. I just don't want to make a decision right now. Yeah. And so being able to push through that. And so for me, you know, kind of step one is like, okay, I agree with you. I totally understand that. I hear you, I, you know, completely agree with them. We always want to agree with the client. And then step two would be just trying to validate, or excuse me, trying to isolate that to be the only objection. So I'd say, okay, other than wanting to talk to your attorney or wanting to talk to your wife, is there any other reason why we wouldn't, you know, do this deal right now? And so now they're having to say, okay, the two answers, right? No, that's the only thing, or no, there's this. And they might say something else. Well, I, yeah, I want to talk to my attorney, but I also, you know, want to talk to a real estate agent and make sure I'm getting a fair deal or whatever, right? And so, oh, okay, now this is different. This is a different problem than attorney, right? Now it's really more about they want to talk to this agent. Okay, well, other than talking to a, a real estate agent to make sure you're getting a fair deal, is there any other reason why you wouldn't do this? today or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And you just keep asking that till they run out of reasons. And hopefully by the time you get to the last reason, that's the real one. And now we can actually address. So let's just say the last one they give us is, um, you know, they want to, let's just say it's a probate deal or something and they want to run it by the members of the family that you have the process here and the deal. And so, okay. So to really validate that this is the right objection. And the only one you say something like, okay, so if the family says yes, that this is a good deal and we want to move forward, are is that all we need? Is like would we are you ready to move forward if they they're if they're all on board? And if they say, well, no, then there's still something else, right? If they say yes, then now you know you're finally on the wrong the right the right objection. And now we can start addressing it. Okay, well, let's just do this. Let's just make the contract contingent on your family saying everything's good, right? Now we can try try and close the deal in whatever process we have to, to, to make it contingent on whatever they want to find out. But just that, just those steps of other than that, is there any other reason why we wouldn't do this today? And then if that is taken care of, like an if then statement, if that is taken care of, would we be signing up today or would we be doing this deal today? Those two questions have definitely changed my ability to handle objections, whether it's solar that I'm selling or talking to sellers or dealing, negotiating with contractors, like whatever it is, that process of, you know, agreeing with them, isolating that it's the only one and then validating that it's the the real issue. That's been a pretty powerful process for me. Yeah, I agree. And it, it's pretty unbelievable sometimes how and we're talking about off-market sellers here, and mainly in the single-family realm. At least that's where I'm at. And I think that's where you're at, Jason, and a lot of our listeners. But they're 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 not reasonable sometimes. So I I recently had a deal where I made the offer, and the seller said, "I'm going to pass on your offer, but best wishes to you." And I called her and I said, "Well, what was wrong?" And she's like, "I need more time to get my stuff out of the house." Yeah. So she passed, she was going to dismiss the entire relationship because she needed more stuff. Well, I can just mm-hmm. simply change that in the contract. And you'd yeah. be surprised if, if we can just get them to sign the agreement. Um, you'd be surprised, you know, that that will lead to a most likely lead to a closing. So we have to eliminate those distractions and adjust the uh, agreement accordingly. Cause I would hate to have that 
let the deal fall out of my hands. I mean, sure, I'll give yeah. you another 15 days to get your stuff out. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Sometimes they're just totally easy things to to handle. Um, yeah. they, they just don't know what the options are when it comes to making the transaction. And so the more you can communicate, the more you can understand asking those probing questions like, hey, you know, just so I know, like, what kept you from from doing this deal with me? And ah, just, ah, just, ah, it's too much pressure. I needed some time to get out, you know, whatever it is. That's like, that's a great example of how to, once you identified the real reason, it was easier to address and you're able to close that deal up. Yeah. So do you have any tactics or maybe f- secret phrases that you say to keep in control of that conversation? Because once you start losing control of the conversation, it gets ugly pretty quick as an investor. So how do you stay in control of those conversations? Yeah, that's a hard one, right? Because you don't I mean you want to stay in control, but you don't want to be controlling. Um, so for me, asking questions can usually bring it back around. Like, let's just say it's spinning out of control on me. And I can say, Hey, you know what? Let me just, let's just step back for a second. Let me ask a couple of questions. So I more fully understand other than this objection. Is there anything else, you know, go right into my scripting of how how to handle those objections. So I think questions are probably the most powerful way to, to step back and just try and get back onto the common ground. I mean, obviously it depends on what, where it's going out of control, but questions. So having good questions, you know, learned and memorized of what how, good probing questions to better understand the client situation. That's going to be huge. And again, these situations can be different every time, right? I mean, it might be if it's a probate deal, if it's foreclosure, pre-foreclosure, like these questions and these scenarios are going to be different every time. So you've got to have quite the Rolodex, I guess, or the the book of good questions to be, to step back Hey, let me just, I think we're going a little bit faster. Let me step back. Let me ask just a couple questions to make sure I'm on the right page. And then just go back into some good probing questions, making sure that you understand. Um, and then just agreeing with the client all the time. Every That's rule number one, right? Is agree with the client. If they say some crazy outlandish objection, hey, totally understand, totally agree with you. Other than that, is there any other reason why we wouldn't do this deal? And you just go back into your, your script. Yeah, yeah. And I would just add that to not only agree with the client at all times, but then follow up with the question, which I think you alluded to. So one of the questions that come to my mind that I got off another podcast, I don't know, is, you know, what's your plan B? If you don't sell this home to me, what's your plan B? And if they Mm -hmm. say, well, uh, well, I might, I might just sell it, you know, I might just sell it to somebody else, you know, tell me who else you're talking to, you know, what do they offer? What's their offer look like compared to mine? So really getting down to that ground level, and not just depending on those laydowns in our businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of those questions can be answered even before the negotiating starts. You know, you're sitting down for coffee and you're like, hey, you know what? What have you already, you know, what research have you already done when it comes to selling your house? What have, what options have you already explored? What do you what do you like about the options that you've explored? And what do you not like about the options you've explored? You know, just asking all these discovery questions way before you start giving them a price and a purchase, you know, agreement, like understanding um, what's really going on, where they're at, what they like, what they don't like, that's going to help you close the deal down the road. And ultimately that's in the business we're in, like we want to make sure this is a win-win deal, right? We want to make sure we help them and we can't help them if we haven't discovered where their pain points are. So those discovery questions, we call them way before the actual selling part happens, those are going to be very valuable. So you're exactly right. 
Yeah, really, you're just trying to pigeonhole them into, you know, thinking that you're the only solution for them. You know, if they say, well, I'll just rent the property. Well, Mr. Seller, you told me earlier in our conversation that you're tired of being a landlord, you know, well, I'll just list it. Well, you're going to have to stage it. It's supposed to look like this. It's going to take X number of days to sell. So you're just trying to like guide them into that sales funnel to the very end where you are the good guy on their side of their table and you have that solution. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, if you ask lots of questions and good questions, usually the seller will give you the ammunition you need to close the deal, to solve their problem and close the deal based on, you know, what they don't want to do. You know, they've already tried to list it. It didn't work or whatever. You need, it's amazing what they'll disclose if you ask the right questions. Yeah, that's all great stuff. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, this next part of our show, I wanted to mention like getting the leads. So maybe we should have talked about that first, but getting the leads into our system because there's two parts of the sales process. It's driving the business and then closing the business. So how are you and your company driving that business in 2021 when the market's so hot and investors are driving the price up? Yeah, I'm probably... I don't know. I, I may not be the best example of filling a pipeline full of leads, but because right now all I do, I just, again, with a full-time job, you know, I'm working whatever it is, eight to six uh, selling solar. So it's morning and evenings for me as far as analyzing deals and trying to acquire deals. So it's more for me, it's about, um, I've got a local agent out there that's helping me find deals. Uh, I'm looking on the MLS every morning, you know, checking things out there. That's honestly where I find most of my deals, surprisingly. Um, but I'm also on a dozen wholesaler lists for the markets that I want to be in. And so I spend my time taking what those teammates, I guess, or, or you know, team members, I guess, what they're sending me. I'm, I'm analyzing the deals for me. Um, that's where I spend most of my time. And I think that's a great strategy, but I'm also a buy and hold investor using the Burr strategy. If I was wholesaling, uh, that obviously wouldn't work. I would need to be putting in direct mail, texting campaigns, phone calls. I mean, I'd be having to push it way harder to find those deals. So, um, which I've done some of that. I've done the direct mail thing. Um, had a VA doing some phone calls for me. It's all very good. It's all very effective. Don't ever think that it's saturated or it's not going to work. I think there's always a level of dedication and expertise that you can differentiate yourself with. So yeah, one way or another, we got to find these deals. We got to find these opportunities and then we need to use our skills, our sales skills to get the deals done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's nothing wrong with depending on the MLS or other wholesalers. Um, that's a way to leverage. I mean, you have all these people working for you that you're not really paying. I mean, yeah. in the end you might pay a little more cause it's more competitive, but you're leveraging yeah. yourself. You're able to do other things, have a job, do, do this and that. And so people are just bringing deals to you and that's, that's phenomenal. Yeah. For, for me, it has to be as passive as possible. So that's why I just pay other people to do that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll hire those people, the, the bird dogs, right? The, the deal finders. That's who I want to bring onto my team. Yeah. Yeah. So the next part I wanted to discuss, you know, the importance of a CRM. Do you have a CRM that you keep up with to keep track of your leads or people you've met at events or whatever. And what is that software you use? It's a combination of a few different things. Um, HubSpot provides a pretty decent uh, free version of their CRM. 
in, initially when I started, I would actually put my, my leads into the hub, into HubSpot. And I had a VA, I would just put the address in and then a VA would grab that. They would go find the tax, uh, you know, the tax assessments or excuse me, the, the tax amount. They would go pull rent comps from Rentometer or wherever. They would put all of that missing data in for me. And then they would let me know when that's completed. Then I would come back and I would analyze the deal because I have all the data. I didn't want to spend the time getting the data. So HubSpot was very, it's free. Um, and so that was very easy to use. It's super customizable. You can move all the fields around. You can, you can definitely, uh, Get a, go a long ways with that free version. So I have that. When it comes to once a lead has been analyzed and it might actually be a deal, I'm kind of just going off of, I use biggerpockets.com for their calculators, their Burr strategy calculator. So if it's in there and saved as a report, then I'm just looking in there. I have I can archive them once they're not a deal or once I don't want to look at them anymore. And I'll have like the best dozen deals that I'm, excuse me, that I'm looking at, they'll be right there. So it's kind of like leads that I need to process and see if they're actually deals, deals move into the bigger pockets thing. And then once they're, once I own the property, it moves into Stessa, which is a property management tool, right? It's, it's uh, accounting, it's tracking all my expenses for each property, allocating those expenses to each, uh, each property, depending on what was spent on. And so those are kind of the three tools that I use as a CRM, I guess, depending on where they're at in the stage of the process. Yeah, that's a cool flow. And I think it's nice that you have different programs. If someone's promising an all-in-one solution, it's usually too good to be true. <laughs> and it's pretty clunky. So you need to have systems that work together. That's awesome. Yeah. So. And there may be one out there, but they're probably expensive, <laughs> right? Yeah. I want to I want to keep as much cash flow as I can. So I, I only want to pay for things that I have to. Bigger Pockets is like, I think it's like 30 or 40 bucks a month. That's probably the only one I really pay for. Stessa is free. So that's pretty nice. Um, especially when you get started, you want to keep your expenses as low as possible so you can spend money where you actually have a good return. And so, yeah, those that's kind of the combination I use. It's probably not perfect, but it definitely works pretty well for us right now. Yeah, I mean, the checks in real estate are pretty big, so it's easy to justify like spending money on this and that, but you have to stay controlled and keep more of your cash flow. Yeah, but it's tempting. Yeah, you got to be careful because you can spend right through it. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So talk about the portfolio you're building right now with the Burr method. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So it's it's we really just focus on single family, usually three bed, one bath. They're usually renting for the reason I like Ohio is because we're able to pick these properties up for thirty, forty thousand dollars. It's starting to get more expensive now. It might be fifty thousand. Um, we put in fifteen or twenty thousand dollars in rehab, and they usually appraise for whatever it is, seventy-five to ninety-five thousand. And we are able to, you know, as you know, the Burr method, right? Do a cash out refinance, pull our capital out, and do it again. So that's been kind of our process out there. Um, I like Ohio because it beats the one percent rule, right? They're renting for nine fifty, but they're worth seventy-five or eighty thousand sometimes. So we we have good cash flow, good cash on cash. Um, it's just been a good market. It's been a good entry market because I'm able to get these deals for cash or using private money. They're not two hundred thousand dollars per deal, so it's a little bit more. It's a little easier to get that kind of private money for those smaller deals. So it's it's been good to us. We're currently in contract on another property right now. 
going through the inspection process and getting contract, you know, getting bids and things like that. But uh, we have a pretty good team out there. I've never actually been out there. haven't seen any of these properties in person, uh, which a lot of people think is just crazy. But, you know, between the contractor, the agent, the property management company, and the home inspector, kind of my team members, they really are my eyes and ears. So if, as long as they're working together and checking on each other's work, it's, it's been a pretty, been a pretty good process. Yeah. And you've got your cell phone, your laptop. There's really no reason to physically be out there. I'm sure. Yeah. It's right. interesting that you said that about your market because I'm in Southwest Missouri and people always think Missouri, you know, high cash flow, and it is, but the values are so high right now that I'm looking at about a 0.8% rule. <laughs> essentially. So below the 1% rule, but it's still cash flowing. And the appraisals have been so good with the Burr method that it's really kind of eliminated any concern of mine. But it is interesting how, at least here, you know, investors are selling, houses are selling for so much is driving up prices. And so I was pretty amazed to hear that you could, you know, get a nice three bedroom for 75 to 90,000 in Ohio. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy, man. It it is crazy. I mean, and the it, the cash flow is getting pinched just like everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. values are going up just like you said. The property values are going up faster than rents are going up, so that one percent rule gets uh, squeezed a little bit here and there. But it for right now, it's still maintaining pretty good ratios. Awesome, good to hear that about your growing portfolio. So, can you touch on? Uh, I know you're a big Grant Cardone fan. Um, in the background, you've got the 10x posters, and so, what's your take on on his philosophy in terms of sales and real estate? How do you? I mean, I'm sure you you use his advice. So, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, when we talked about the value of sales skills in in being in the real estate world, um, I think some of his most profound advice for me is is just his strategy of maximizing because it works for me, right? Not everybody is in my position, but for me, I have a W-2. So his strategy is maximize your W-2 income, maximize your main gig, make as much money as you can there, live on less than you make. I think he says like, it's crazy numbers, but you know, like 40 or 50%, take that and put it aside. He, he doesn't say put it in savings. He says, store it, which is basically savings, right? Store it and then buy cash flowing assets with it. That's like some of his most profound advice, I believe. I mean, it's a similar thing to Robert Kiyosaki, just getting cash flowing assets um, under management. So his his strategy of make money, store it, then buy cash flowing assets so you have passive income. That to me is is the best, most sure way to wealth. Um, getting and utilizing those steps, I think is... It, it, that's probably been the biggest help for me is, okay, all right, now I've got a good income. Now what do I do? Okay, let's figure out how to, I think we take like 40%, every paycheck, 40% of it goes straight to storage savings, right? And then we're using that capital to build up our retirement, build up our, our portfolio and and those kinds of things. So now we continue to build up our the amount of passive income we're, we're getting to hopefully one day, eventually that will flip, right? I'll have more passive income coming in than my active income. And then boom, you know, we're, we're financially free, quote unquote. Yeah. So do you have a, a date in mind for that or is it <laughs> too far off or what's going on? Um, I'm not, I don't really have a date. Um, uh, just know that that's the ultimate goal. Um, with the company that I work for, I, I I'm a part owner. So for me, it's kind of like, it's a good gig. It's great. It's good money. So I'll hold that out as long as I need to, 
obviously the sell of the company would be a good exit for that. I would have a bunch of money to put, go, go put into real estate. So I'm not in a hurry to leave there, um, but I do want to keep positioning myself and keep working on the cash flowing assets so that when the time comes that that company sells or I move away from that, that I can just walk into a financially free, passive income, sustained life where I don't have to go find another job after that. That's that's the plan. That's really interesting because everyone talks about you know quitting your job fast, but if you're a part owner in a company, you know that can be a stream of passive income. And you know, like you said, if they sell out, that could be a big chunk of change that you yeah. wouldn't get as an employee. So, can you briefly touch on, you know, do you? I mean, do you recommend somebody tries to go and be a part owner or how did you even get into that? Yeah, no, I I think, I mean, everybody's got a different path. So, I mean, I definitely am an advocate. Like if I was to start over and I was leaving college, I would have went and got my sales experience knocking doors. And then I would have went right into real estate. I would have avoided, I would have, because I've been doing the solar thing for 12 years now. That's a long time. I bet, I bet 12 years of real estate investing, I would be in a way different world right now financially. So I still think if you can avoid, if you can get right into real estate and just start building your, 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 your holdings, I think that's probably the best way, the fastest way to what we all call financial freedom, right? Not having a W2 nine to five job. I think that's, that's great. But in the sense that I, sold for this company for a while. They, I did, you know, I obviously did a good job. So they wanted me to come on as a partner. So I'm in a different position. I'm like, well, it doesn't make sense for me to walk away from a potentially big payout in this company and a very a good income to go try and figure it out on the passive income side. So to me, it's like, ah, I got to balance that. I've got to milk all I can out of the W2 thing um, it, and build up my real estate on the side. If you're in a crappy job, if you're in a job that you don't like, then by all means, let's get you out of there as fast as possible. But because I have the position that I have and the income that I have, I'm just not in a big hurry because I still believe that my income is still like one of the most one of the most valuable tools in acquiring more capital to invest passive to invest to acquire more properties to build up my retirement accounts. I still think that's a very valuable tool. So I think every path is a little bit different, and you kind of have to take it each scenario differently. Um, cause again, yeah, if you're working, if you're lifting bags of cheese at some cheese factory and you just, that's not your thing. And then you're not feeling passionate about it and you're not being compensated well, and there's no future for you there, then let's get you out of there as fast as possible. Let's jump into some wholesaling, get some cash, get some money. Then we'll build up our reserves. Then we'll buy some, you know, some properties to hold, whatever it is. I think every scenario is different, but for me, it, it just doesn't make sense to run away from it very quickly. Yeah, everyone's scenario is so different. I, I was definitely in the camp that I was not not happy where I was. So I went full time six weeks ago nice. in real estate and I I chose wholesaling and flipping. And so those provide the large active checks and then I just cherry pick those best deals to burr. And so mm-hmm. I've been plugging along and I really think like that 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 dichotomy of wholesaling and then rental property investing is just it's so powerful. I can't believe it. And so yeah. I know I won't be wholesaling and flipping for too much longer. I mean, years and years, because it's just going to get to the point where I have so many rental properties because I, I get the best ones, get the best yeah. deals that it overtakes the active income. So yeah, it's, it's a, a beautiful model. thing. Yeah. It's a great model. Yeah. You're on, you're on a, you're on a great path. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Thank you. 
Well, this uh, last portion of our show, Justin, is uh, called the triple threat. And we ask the same three questions to each guest. And so what's that resource tool app that's been the greatest, biggest game changer for your business? I would say the bigger pockets. Too. Yeah. The bigger pockets membership that I have. Um, I don't know. I don't know how, if, if your lips, the listeners are aware of bigger pockets, but bigger pockets is a great forum. It's a great website. It's all, I mean, you can go, I mean, I have found my agents through there. I found my property management through bigger pockets. I go read the forums. I get educated. Their podcasts are all phenomenal. Um, following in the footsteps of like Brandon Turner and David green, like they, it's just a tons of information and it's all, a lot of the information is free. If you want to use the calculators, which they have calculators for wholesaling, for the burr, for a flip, for just a normal rental property, uh, for and for small multifamily. And, and they can I think they even have a rehab calculator on there. So I'm like, I, I'm not smart enough to go make my own Excel spreadsheet. So I'm like, I'm just going to use this 40 bucks a month. I have access to that plus all of the networking tools. Um, that's been probably the biggest thing for me because every time I, you know, I coach somebody on the Burr method and they're like, well, how do I run the math? I'm like, well, you gotta, we need a calculator and bigger pockets provides a great one. So that's probably one. I mean, I'm in that every day and it's probably the best 40 bucks a month that I spent. I'm sure I could go make one on Excel, but I'd probably screw up an equation somewhere and I'd probably have the wrong number. So I just lean on this. I just lean on the tool. that's already been built for me. Yeah. Good recommendation. Number two, what has been your biggest learning lesson in the last year? Man, 2021 has been different than 2020. And it's been way harder to get deals. I don't know if it's been the same for you, but man, finding stuff to burr and buy and hold, it's been tough. We probably made 30 offers to get this last deal because people are just, there's investors out there that can tie up more capital than I'm willing to tie up on each deal. So they can offer higher than I can, Mm -hmm. or they have better financing or whatever. So what the lesson was, everything was groovy in 2020. And I'm like, man, I can just, we're going to ramp up so fast in 2021. And then all of a sudden, like it just tweaked a little bit. Prices went up, you know, Ohio got more popular. All of a sudden I'm like, holy crap. Like I used to be making offers for 40,000. Now I'm making offers for 55,000. We're squeezing the 1% rule. And I'm just like, holy crap, like this is, it got so competitive so quickly. And it took me a while to, it took me way too long to come to terms that, hey, I'm going to have to leave 10 grand in these bird deals. I didn't want to leave any money in the deals. And so I'm like, okay, like if I want to play the game, I got to get okay to leave some money in these deals. I've got to get a little more aggressive on my numbers. And so it took, the lesson learned is that, I should have took that data and what I was seeing and then made some shifts, made some adjustments to my strategy rather than spending four or five months just wondering why I wasn't getting any deals and not making any adjustments. So the lesson is whatever it is, whatever the current scenario is, it's not going to be that way for very long. It's going to change. So make sure that your strategy, you're always, you're always looking at the data and you're adjusting and pivoting to what needs to happen so, for you to continue to grow your portfolio. And it just took, I was too slow in 2021. And so it's going to cost me, you know, I, I'm not going to get as many deals in 2021 as I wanted to for sure. So just, yeah, being able to adjust with the market was, was a slow learning curve for me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's probably, if we looked at it, there might be fewer deals out there in 2021, but at least in my market, more homes are for sale now than there were, you know, any part of the rest of the year. So yeah. 
I mean, more homes being sold. We are going into a slow season though with selling, but I have, at least in the off market, you have to be much more quick, quick speed to lead is a lot more important because they're, the offers start to pile up pretty fast and you need to get the agreement signed a lot faster. Um, but that's the biggest shift I've seen with me. And I know it, it is kind of an ego hit sometimes when you leave money in the deal with the burr, but then you have to really think about it. I mean, in five years, are you going to care that you left five grand in the deal? No. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was like, my cash on cash was like 30 or 40%. And I'm like, man, I can't find that anywhere else. Like, why would I even hesitate putting 10 grand in an, in any investment that's going to make me 40%. Like it, it just took me a second for the lights to come on and, and to start making more aggressive offers. Yeah. And when, and it really puts it into perspective when you, when that 30% is not even counting tax breaks or appreciation. Right. Yeah. It, I love real estate, man, for that very reason. It's just so good. So good yeah. to us. Question three, our podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom with real estate investing, whether it's financial lifestyle, or otherwise. So what does freedom mean to you? Yeah, I love, I love this question. Um, I think everybody has a little bit different definition of it. Um, and I think people that come into the Instagram world of financial freedom and fire, they sometimes, I think they sometimes misinterpret it as I want to retire early and sit on the beach and, you know, drink a latte or whatever. I don't drink lattes, but whatever, right? Just like not do anything. And and I don't think that's what we're talking about when we, when investors or whoever, when we talk about financial independence, retiring early, it, it's just more about being able to do what we want to do on our own schedule. For me, life is about being able to slow down and enjoy the moments, but also being able to fit in as many moments as I can. And those moments don't really happen at my W-2 job. So I want to spend less and less time there and more and more time with my family. I love the outdoors. I love exploring. I love traveling. So I want to do things that are bringing more value, more joy to me in my life. And so time is what I need. The more I can shift my life to where it's more passive income, less required work each day, the more I can fit that time into the things that I actually want. And whether that, I mean, down the road, maybe it's uh, you know, working for a nonprofit. Maybe it's, you know, doing some volunteer work. I think I have, I have uh, aspirations of all that down the road. So to me, it's just being able to do, just being able to live your own schedule and not being like, oh, it's Monday. I've got to go to work or I don't get a paycheck. That's what I don't want. I want to be able to say, Hey, you know, whatever. Um, my daughter's got, you know, a, a play Friday afternoon at school. I want to be able to just go and not worry about what might be going on at my W2. So for me, that's what it's about. And, and trying to get to that position is is definitely the goal. Yeah. I love what you said at the beginning of that too, was you said, it's not just about making the most of each moment. It's about fitting more moments into our life. Um, Cause let's, let's be honest. If, if you're working about a third of your life, then you can't be having those amazing moments during that time. So you're restricted to the other third of your life because you're sleeping for a third. And so naturally, if you're financially free, you can just have more of those moments. And mm -hmm. um, certainly if you have more money, you can have more maybe exhilarating moments. So not, not, not always the case, but that's, yeah. that's a good response for sure. I, I, I like think it's... Too. I think it's the way I look at it is well, like, so, so here, this will be, this will be an example. So this, this bottle right here. So your audio listeners won't see this, but this bottle right here, like there's a couple of different ways I view life. 
right now we're trained as a society that we fill this bottle, our life with work. Like that's, we feel like that's the top priority. That's where we spend all of our time. We fill it up with sand or work, right? And then, so there's no room for the important things, right? Like family, like uh, adventure, like experiencing the world. And so for me, it's about, I want to fill my life with the important things first and then fit work in around my life. I'll always work. I'll always be hustling deals. I'll always be doing stuff to create value in the economy and in the world. So to me, it's not about never, no, you know, not working anymore. It's just about, I want to fit work in around my life and not fit my life in around work anymore. That's the biggest rub for me. I, I hate like, oh, I like I, I can go on a, I can go hike in the mountains, but only after five o'clock on Friday. And I'm like, no, like I want to go in the morning. I want to watch the sunrise. So I want to fit work in after that and not the other way around. That's been the big shift in my mindset. I want to fit. I want to fit. I want to fit work in around my life, not life in around work. Yeah, definitely. That's a good analogy or illustration, you know, putting in the bigger objects and then the sand, the work around it and it fits, fits together it. nicely. Yep. <laughs> yep. Great. Um, Justin, where can the listeners get a hold of you to learn more? Yeah. Um, best place is Instagram uh, at the Money Maven Project. Um, that's probably the best place. Message me there. I'm I pretty much just respond to everybody. Um, just takes me a day or two, but I respond to everybody. So hit me there with a DM if you want to chat or if you have some questions. That's probably the best place to follow me. Um, we do have a podcast, the Money Maven Project podcast. Um, is also a good place to just learn about what we what we do. Um, probably the best two places to follow us. We have a little presence on YouTube also, and then our website, um, themoneymavenproject.com also. But uh, yeah, those are the best places to reach out to me for sure. Awesome. Well, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show and sharing your knowledge with the listeners. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review and tune in next week for the next episode.